I was thinking about some of the things that I would share um, back from my life. But I, I realized that a lot of times that I can actually, when I talk about pride, I can be prideful about being prideful. <laughs> and, um, and I think the Lord was just impressing on me just to share what happened this week. So on Monday, um, I uh, went ahead and uh, finally did what I had been putting off for about three weeks, which was mowing the lawn. And uh, I would have to say, it, it looked amazing. <laughs> In fact, I was congratulating myself, and I was like, oh, wow, what a great work of edging and a great work of, um, you know, lo- mowing and how great my lawn looks. And, um, and I think the Lord always has funny ways of moving. So after that, I decided to get, it was my day off, so I, I, I decided I'm going to get lunch for uh, my, my family. And so um, I back, I check my uh, mirrors and I back out, only to hear this crunch on the right side. And it turned out I literally took off my right mirror um, and ripped off the plastic casing with the rear view mirror. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> oh, great. And then so then I was like, what do I do? So I just decided to go, and then I went back into the garage, and then I made it worse. And it basically cracked off uh, on my entire right side. And so I was just like, man. This doesn't look good. And so, um, and, uh, and I was so upset about that. So, um, but then I, that made me late. And then I went to drive out um, uh, down Jersey Village up uh, Rio Grande. Uh, and I was just so lost in this idea that I messed up, that I don't even know how to back out the driveway. And then all I hear is, and then the, the, the police officer comes right behind me. And I was like, oh, no, he's out to get me. And sure enough, he... Uh, pulls me over, and I knew exactly. I was going, as you know, in Jersey Village, it's, what, 10 miles an hour is the <laughs> speed limit, uh, but it was, uh, <laughs> I think I was going, like, 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. I think I was going, like, 30, 35, um, and probably the Lord is saying, no, you want 40, <laughs> and I, I was going 35, and he pulled me over, and he's like, yeah, you, I, get, I pulled you over for speeding. Let me see your license and registration. So, um, yeah, I got pulled over <laughs> for speeding in Jersey Village, um, and, uh, but he comes back, and he's like, I'll let you off with the warning. Um, and so I was like, oh, thank God. But the entire time, you know, there's nothing that would deflate you than getting a ticket or at least getting pulled over by a police officer. And the entire time, I think I realized, kind of what Jordan was, was saying, is that I realized I was so bent out of proportion about my car and bent out of proportion about my reputation because when I got pulled over, I was like right in the golf course and everybody was staring at me, including all the workers there. And I was like right there in plain sight. And the thought came to my mind is like, what if Hope Church sees me? What if somebody from Hope sees me getting pulled over? What would they think of me? And I realized that on Monday, I realized how easily... um, that pride um, and the concern of others can just, just seep into my life. So much so that I start resenting uh, when I think that I am just untouchable or when I don't think I need God's help or I don't need sanctification or I don't need repentance. When I get on the top of my high horse and I think that I'm the king of the world and that I've somehow made it in my spiritual walk in Christianity. Well, I think the Lord was teaching me that because I think 
he was reminding me, he's like, you're nowhere near that. You're growing. But this is, your, this is my teacher for you. I'm teaching you. And this, this Monday that didn't seem like a gift of breaking your mirror and getting pulled over by the police um, is a gift to you. It's a gift to remind you that you need to deflate your pride. And that's been a, a recurring occurrence in my mind to realize that and to confess that I'm a prideful man. And yet I remember, I remind myself of the times in which I have poured over Scripture. And it was a time back in the day when I, I, I read this book in Barnes & Noble. And it was a book on pride. And it, it brought, us back, brought me back to Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. And it, the Scripture says, To him I will look, to him who is lowly and contrite in heart and who trembles at my word. And the author was making this point. He's saying, you know what, what gains God's attention? It's not your prowess theologically. It's not your ability to live a spot-free life. To this that I will look, that God will literally just bend down to, and that is humility. He is irresistibly drawn to humility. So when, we, when we've just read this passage, which just seems scathing in denunciation, let us see this as a gift of God, that he is calling some of us to repent and some of us to come face to face to our pride and say, this is good. This is good for us. Let's go to God's word in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 to 24. And Jesus is scathing in his denunciation against the cities. He says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. What I think that the, the point that God wants to make here is that he's calling all of us, including myself and everybody in this room, to repent of spiritual pride. Repent of spiritual pride. When you read verse 20, there's just no way around it that Jesus is scathing in his denunciation and harsh in his denunciation. He, he's calling a great condemnation uh, upon what we call the Bible belt of their day, which is Chorazin, Pethsaida, and also uh, Capernaum for failing to repent after getting the front row seats to Jesus' powerful ministry than those proverbial wicked cities outside of the kingdom of God. And so you may be turned off by this denunciation and judgment type of language. In fact, we live in a culture that now prides itself in denunciation. And uh, we live in a cancel culture and a hashtag me too culture. We're living in this type of tension where it is just unpopular to go against this culture. Because if you do anything that is seemingly against the norm, you are canceled. And then we airlift this to Christianity in which we try to dumb down what Christianity says and what Jesus says to make them more culturally acceptable. But here it is clear that Jesus is condemning these cities for being witnesses, for being front row witnesses to most of his mighty works. 
where there should have been a clear validation of Jesus' identity, the power of the kingdom um, he was bringing, and a clarion call to look at themselves and find ways to repent, the people of these two cities and these three cities refused to do so. Well, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, were, they were called part of the evangelical triangle. They are kind of like, you know, the Texas cities that we see today. Uh, Capernaum and Bethsaida would be on, if you think of a triangle, they'd be on two of the parallel, the opposite sides of the triangle, and Chorazin would be on the top. And then down here in the center would be the Sea of Galilee. And we see this is like the top three of what God was doing where Jesus decided to show up. Three of his disciples, Andrew, Peter, and Philip, um, actually were called and was called themselves home in one of these three cities. A blind man was healed in Bethsaida. You see that in Mark chapter 8, 22 to 27. And Bethsaida, and nearby Bethsaida, um, it was also right near to where Jesus actually fed the 5,000. Um, and just on the outer skirts were just a few loaves and fish. And so this was a big-time town, right? Jesus did some big-time miraculous works of power here. And so if you think, if they, you saw the 5,000 people being fed by a couple bread loaves and fish, you would think this is a place of big-time revival, right? Wrong. The people who are witness to Jesus' storied miracles, the ones you would love to go back in a time machine and just see, they were completely indifferent. Very much like, you know, this, this post-Bible Belt Christianity. They were proud of their Christian work ethic, their Christian heritage, their Christian values, but they were too proud to repent. And Jesus says, you know those proverbial wicked people that you know as Tyre and Sidon? Those Gentiles that lived outside of the kingdom of God and, and, and were not even fit to have any bit of your presence, God? These were the heathen cities that the prophets had historically called down judgment for their spiritual pride, their wealth, and their idolatry, and their wickedness. But you know, compared to them, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum, if they saw the same works you did, that you saw, they would have immediately fell on their face. They would have dropped in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth, as you know, is the traditional sign of incredible grief over their sins. It was a public declaration that they were genuinely sorry for what they had done. And, 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 and in doing so, and ripping their clothes, they laid out whatever was on the table and said, God, we have sinned. We have messed up profoundly before you. And God, you do whatever you want to. You, you know you have the right to destroy us. Jesus said they would fare even much better on the day of judgment than them. Jesus knows all things, and we see the sovereignty of Jesus on display, of how even, he even knew how the people of Tyre and Sidon would have reacted had they had seen what Bethsaida and, and Chorazin saw. But Jesus knew that these people suffered with one thing. They suffered for what I suffered with, a great spiritual pride. And they thought they were better off than the secular, unchristianized people of their day. And this becomes really clear when we look at uh, Capernaum. We may think, is, is Jesus just being selectively harsh? Is Jesus just going on a Twitter tirade and, and bashing people? Um, 
Is he going on a blog and going down the comments and just going crazy? Well, you have to see the context of, of Capernaum. In fact, when you look at the history of Capernaum, he, Jesus even called it his city. Um, it was the epicenter of Jesus' miracles. And Jesus, um, and if you think that Jesus was just being harsh here and just like blowing up at this random city, kind of like we think when, we, when he looked at the, at the fig tree and, and then he saw there was no fruit on it, even though it wasn't fig season anyway, and he cursed it, we think that Jesus is just being selectively harsh. Well, you got to look at it again because we have to see that Jesus what he was doing there was really out of his love and grace. And this was the epicenter of his miraculous work up to this point. Take a look at the list, and you can, you can jot these down. But this is how many miracles that were actually at Capernaum. In Capernaum, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18 to 26, and also in the other two Gospels, he heals Jairus', uh, the ruler's daughter. In Mark chapter 1, 21 to 28, he healed a demon-possessed man. In, in Matthew 8, verses 14 through 15, he, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. In, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2 through 8, he healed a paralytic. And then he also went above that and beyond his own people. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, he heals the centurion's servant. And then in Mark chapter 5, he heals the woman that was hemorrhaging uh, blood. And healed her with a disease or the, the condition that she had been suffering for so many years. And so when you think of and you pull all these miracles together, you cannot think of a selectively harsh, mean, and tirading Jesus. You can't look at that and, and see this is, this is going on. Jesus' Jesus's powerful sermons were probably in the city of Capernaum. One of his powerful sermons. It's John chapter 6 when he called himself the bread that came down from heaven, comparing himself as the one that would fulfill to be the greater prophet than the one of Moses. Additionally, Jesus preached sermons in Capernaum about humility, about stumbling blocks, about forgiveness, about the church in Matthew 18. He also preached on exorcism and healing. So you know what? If you had your zip code um, in Capernaum, if it was 777, that was zip code of, of, of Capernaum, you would have the clearest picture of who Jesus was. And so you got to see that Jesus did everything humanly and divinely necessary to help the people repent. But yet, look at what Jesus said. Look in verse 23 in Matthew chapter 11. He says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would remain until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus is calling them out straight up about their spiritual pride and their eventual demise. But lest we think that Jesus is just going on a Twitter tirade or rant, Jesus is, was not ranting or revengeful but this is one of regrets. This word, he doesn't even give a woe here, right? It's not a grim, bloodthirsty call uh, for these cities to be destroyed. Remember, Jesus' love and compassion is the driving force for everything, including his wrath. We see that throughout the book of Matthew. And here we combine warning 
and compassion. You can't think that Jesus is just glorying or reveling in his denunciation. Jesus is absolutely devastated that he has to do this. He's devastated for the judgment they brought upon themselves. Jesus has done everything he could to help the kingdom of God just just be advanced in their midst. But the people could not overcome their spiritual pride. And you know where... Uh, Capernaum is? You know where it is right now? Capernaum, true to what Jesus has said, the last trace of this city, it was alive and well in the fifth century. But from that time onwards, there's nothing else except for ruins. The only thing you can see is a rubble of rocks marking the ancient synagogue. Capernaum, it's disappeared from the face of the earth. And as I read over Jesus' judgment, I think it really brings it home. Where I think the enemy can tempt us in saying, well, oh, that was bad for him. I'm so too bad for Bethsaida and Capernaum and Chorazin. And yeah, they were judged for their sin. What a shame. And we just can easily check out about this and say, oh, that was another time, another place. But that's irrelevant to us because we live in the new covenant. Jesus took upon our shame and Jesus took upon our judgment and took, took upon it in full and exhausted the full wrath of God for our sins. Because we were rebels. We had come against God and we had kicked God off his holy throne because of our sin. But God in his love and his mercy had sent his son Jesus Christ in love to take upon the wrath that was due me and for you. And he lived a sinless life and then he died on a cruel cross taken upon the wrath of God and all of his anger against sin and all the punishment on himself. Then he rose again to show his victory over sin. Yes, and that is the gospel that we preach, and that is the gospel that we hold to. But I wonder if we give ourselves an out in thinking that we are beyond this, in thinking that this is just judgment and wrath, and we don't have to think about this. I think that's a subtle error. The error is that we can turn a blind eye to our own sin. And so this passage doesn't cause us to check our own hearts. May I invite us to think twice and consider what we, if we are harboring the sin of pride. I wonder how often we think so casually about pride that we invite judgment on ourselves just like Capernaum. Oh, family, I I love you. But I think we've tasted and seen the power and the glory, and some of us have tasted the miracles of God. And yet we shrug sometimes when we come to confessing sin in our lives. And I think the message today is clear. We just need to repent of our sin. If the very thing that you get from this is that sin is, God convicts you of sin, I want to encourage you, come. And just, just confess that as a, as a means of grace, as a, say, a sign of saying, God, you are better than hiding in the dark of sin. Maybe that's the first thing you need to do. Maybe after this time, even though we've been together for some time, maybe it's been some time since you've confessed your sins to one another. And if you saturate yourself in thick gospel preaching and you have nothing to repent of in your own soul, there's something dreadfully wrong. That's just bruising. 
But yet we battle sin and we battle the enemy and we live for the glory of God when we confess our sins. There's nothing more powerful like in men's prayer times when, we can, when I hear brothers confess their sin. Amen? And there's nothing more than that will scare the enemy than a praying and repenting church. Hallelujah? He is afraid of that because he lives in the dark. He's a, a he has blinded us and he's kept us in darkness and he wants to keep us in the darkness. But yet, the way that we do that, the way we break from that is by confessing our sins to one another as Scripture commands us as long as each day is called today. You know, but a lot of times I think we listen to podcasts and we listen to sermons and um, we're so easy to um, highlight the, the best parts of the sermon, but that's where it stops. But we don't go further and say, you know what? I think the Lord is really causing me to repent of how I treated my wife this morning. Let me go back and, and, and repent and confess my sins to her today. Or, you know what? I got really angry at my son, and um, I know I, I went on a tirade, and I, I just need to, I, I didn't need, I need to give that up to him. If we're not listening to that and we're not listening to the Lord, then we may be in spiritual pride. And so we got to think and, and look and be concerned with this danger of spiritual pride pride. Because I think when we don't confess sin, I think we miss out on what God has for us. There's just a, a beauty in which confession of sin plays such a huge part. And I think traditional liturgies such as the practice of corporate confession of sins have been removed today. Yet that has always been a historical place in the gathered people of God. I remember growing up in my Chinese Baptist church, and, um, and our services would fill uh, with liturgy that sometimes I do uh, miss now. And one thing after a very long 10-minute pastoral prayer uh, was always reciting the Lord's Prayer, which was probably a means for us to wake up um, uh, as kids. But it's where Jesus himself teaches us how to pray, uh, among other things, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And I know I took that for granted. I know that I was just mechanically repeating this because it's the thing to do, to so get through the service. Yet I failed to realize what a gift it was, that it was for my benefit, that not that I felt good about myself, but that I felt I was coming face to face with a, a holy God, and I got a picture of how offensive I was to God so that I can have a bigger view of the gospel. It's those little things, like confession of sin, is like it or not, has reminded me of the need to come to confession day by day, and if not, hour by hour. That's why I love hope, because I think we model that desire. We try to go after the desire to confess their struggles and our struggles. But I love that, because paradoxically, when we confess our sins, it makes me want to battle more. James K. Smith, he, uh, he wrote a book called You Are What You Love, and it's talking about the importance of... Um, uh, of understanding the liturgies, the habits that we make. He says this, what if the opportunity to confess is precisely what we long for? What if an invitation to confess our sins is actually the answer to our seeking? What if we want to confess our sins and didn't even realize it until given the opportunity? What if confession is unwittingly the desire of every broken heart? We all want intimacy with one another, we all want intimacy with our brothers and sisters, but you know the way that we get there is not by holding back. It's actually by, it's not by harboring spiritual pride and saying that I'm okay or I don't really have a sin problem. 
but just saying straight up, I am a prideful man or woman, and I need to confess. We need liturgies, and we need habits to be able to battle against pride. And uh, one of the best gifts is from the Puritans. Um, Listen to Philip Doddridge um, in his prayer of a convicted sinner. Injured king and almighty judge, what can I say to the charges against me? Should I pretend to be offended and defend myself? I do not dare. You know my foolishness. None of my sins is hidden from you. My conscience tells me that denying my crimes would only increase them and add new fuel to the fire of wrath I deserve. I am more guilty than I can say. My heart speaks more than any accuser. And you, Lord, are much greater than my heart. You know it all. What has my life been but rebellion against you? It is not this or that particular sin alone. From start to finish, nothing has been right. My whole soul has been disordered. All my thoughts and affections, my desires, my pursuits, everything has been alienated from you. I have acted as if I hated you, you who are infinitely the loveliest of all beings, as if I had been trying to wear out your wonderful patience. My actions have been evil, my words yet more so, and in my heart, how much more corrupt than either. What fountain of sin and original corruption is my heart? It mingled its bitter streams with the days of early childhood and flows on even to this day. And I have been growing worse and worse, provoking your patience more and more. I'm astonished that your patience continues. Had I been a parent, I would have long since cast off such an ungrateful child. Why then, Lord, am I not cast out from your presence? Why am I not sealed up in an irreversible sentence of destruction? I owe my life to your indulgence. But if there is yet any way of deliverance, any hope for so guilty a creature, may it be open to me by your gospel and your grace. If any more humiliation or terror is needed for my salvation, may I bear it all. Wound, me, wound my heart, Lord, so you can afterwards heal it. Break it in pieces if you bind it up in the end. Amen. I don't know how any of us can be prideful while praying, praying prayers like these. We need to pray prayers with the same heart and the same tune of realizing how much our sin offends a holy God so that we can see the gift of grace that God has given us through the gospel. The second thing, and I'll close with this, is that I think when we don't confess our sin and when we harbor spiritual pride, we miss out on the work of God of what he wants through us. I was reading a... um, uh, biography uh, by John Jonathan Goforth just finished it a while back, and I'm always startled by how um, Jonathan Goforth would be uh, right around the turn of the century. He'd go around China and, and hold revival meetings all around China at an invitation, and he would, um, as he was there, he would often ask and he would pray in the Holy Spirit, and sometimes he would sense that there was the Holy Spirit was there convicting them of unrepentant sin um, of somebody. 
And so what he would do is he'd just give a short address and then, a Chinese, and then um, wait for the Spirit of God to move. And so there was one school, boys' school, that he was at one day. And uh, this boys' school was just hopeless. It was so involved in sin. There was no movement of God. He had done some revival stuff. Nothing happened. Um, he had to leave Jonathan Goforth. And while he left to go to the station, the superintendent left so depressed because he's saying, if Jonathan Goforth couldn't do anything, what good can I do? But he was committed to go forth and continue to do the revival meetings. And when he came back, he gave a short address, and the Spirit of God moved. He came over the students because one Christian teacher came up, and he confessed his sin, that he had lied about smoking with one of the students and he had covered it up for a year. And every time he wished to pray, he would just, he would be stopped for prayer because he would go back to that lie. And the first few minutes, he just wept. And that confession prompted a move of the Holy Spirit so that even by that afternoon, 55 students came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Amen. And I think the Lord doesn't want us to miss out on what God is doing. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God wants to be advanced through us. But so many times there's something hindering us before there's a confession that needs to be made. There needs to be sin confessed and hindrance removed so that the Holy Spirit can break through in fullness. And I wonder here at Hope Church on this day in June, what sins does the Lord has put on your heart to confess that, that may be the start of something that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our church? What if the Lord is moving and he starts with the simple practice of confessing our sins before a holy God that God will burst through like a tidal wave and just advance the kingdom of God through our faithfulness to his command to confess our sins. So what I would like us to do as we invite you all to stand, as we invite the worship team, invite the prayer team to come forward, um, I'd like us to take a moment and just simply stand before God. You can stand or you can sit. Whatever you feel is necessary, you can kneel. And I'd like us to spend a, about a couple minutes in just straight up saying, God, you have my heart. I surrender everything to you. There's sin that needs to be confessed. Confess it between you and God. And then I would simply ask that maybe if it's been a while since you've confessed, um, go to one of our prayer team. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to just hear your confession as a means of grace and just to pray over you that the addictions, the power of sin would be broken and that the chains would be removed and that God would be able to move and work in Hope, in Hope Church more than he's ever done uh, before in our nine years, that we would be in surrender to what God has for us. So let's do this right now. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would come about a spirit of repentance and confession in our, in our church right now that you would silence our voices and they would hear your voice and that we would just be able to confess our sins before you. God, will you do great work now in this place. Holy Spirit, move in power as we pray and as we enter a time of worship and prayer. Let's spend a couple minutes and let's pray. And then I want to invite you to stand and go ahead and pray. Maybe come forward for prayer, confess your sins, or just pray out of the gratitude 
that God is the great Savior.